Welcome to the Veterans Breakfast Club, where veterans tell their stories. I'm Todd DePastino, director of the Veterans Breakfast Club and host of today's program, which is a live recording of one of our storytelling events in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. The Veterans Breakfast Club is a nonprofit with a simple mission to give every veteran a chance to tell his or her story. We do this in our public storytelling programs, where veterans of all eras share their memories in their own words. For more information, visit us at veteransbreakfastclub.com. Enjoy the program. So you're here basically because of two people. First and foremost is my great-grandmother, who came to this country from Lebanon on the Titanic, and she barely survived. There were 16 lifeboats on the Titanic and four collapsibles, and the Titanic crew was only able to load and launch two of those four collapsible lifeboats, A, B, C, and D, and my great-grandmother was saved in one of those two lifeboats. The Titanic sunk within minutes of her exiting it. It was a very harrowing experience for her, the primary torment to her, like all other Titanic survivors, and it was especially the case for her because she was so close to the Titanic were the sounds of the people when they landed in the water because it was excruciatingly painful. The very, 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 very few people who survived that ordeal likened it to the feeling of thousands of nails gouging into their skin. And she was tormented by this. She would wake up screaming in the night, in her hair, which was beautiful. She had that jet black Middle Eastern color. And at 38, that's old in 1912, but she did have some gray hair, but that hair turned completely white within nine months of her voyage. That's how traumatizing it was for her. But then she did manage to survive, and like all the other early 20th century immigrants, she worked exhaustively. And she came into this country at a time when the Industrial Revolution was happening, and she stepped right into that, and her family started Joy Cone Company, which still exists uh, today in Hermitage, Pennsylvania, almost 100 years later. So that brings me to my second person, and that's my father, Joe George. He's here, and I'd like him to stand up. You know, I don't really get nervous when I talk, but I'm just too emotional. I'm sorry, just bear with me. But my father is a Marine, he was a Marine, and he was a history major in college, and he was passionate about history, in particular military history. And he would drag my brothers and I around from battlefield to battlefield to museum to museum when we were kids. And he's so brilliantly learned on the history that he would literally enact the battles. I mean, I remember being at Gettysburg, and he was, he was enacting the battle. And, and I hated every minute of it. I was so bored. And I remember one time in particular him getting so mad at me, and he said, Sharon, these men sacrificed everything for this nation. And to which I horrifyingly replied, I don't care. <laughs> and he banished me to the motorhome. <laughs> but then one day my father began to talk about the men of the Army of the Cumberland, men such as yourselves here today. If we were to go hurling, hurling, hurling back 150 years in time, you men would be fighting in those battles. So when he talked about that, it kind of resonated with me because I could connect, of course, to the men from my area. 
But then he began to tell the story of a particular battle that they fought within the Battle of Chattanooga in the Civil War called Missionary Ridge. And at first when he started talking, I was like, Ugh. and he said, I want you to listen to this story. I want you to listen to it. And I did. And it turned out to be the most fascinating, the most powerful, the most mesmerizing story of sinking so low as a soldier and then overcoming something that was totally impossible to overcome. And I can tell you this, <laughs> that after that, I was never again indifferent because for the first time I realized just how much men and some women have sacrificed for this nation that we live in, which is amazing. And so that's why you're here, because I believe that what you do for our nation, which I respect and admire and have deep affection for, some of you in one day is more than I will ever do in my lifetime. And if the best I can do is throw you a great party, then that's what I want to do. I am thrilled and I am honored that you are here. You have no idea how happy I am. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. And no, no, sit down, sit down. So we have two guests here today that I've spent some time with. And they are Kevin Kincaid and Daniel Taylor. I'd like to ask them to come up here real quick. So Kevin is an Afghanistan Army combat vet, and Daniel is a Navy vet. And I found Kevin on Facebook, and I wrote to him and I said, Kevin, my name is Sharon George, I have this foundation, I want you to come to my house, I want you to walk. Because what they're doing is, they're walking the 48 states to bring awareness for veterans to honor and recognize them. And I said, can you get to Pennsylvania on October 1st? He's like, ah. I'm in Rhode Island. <laughs> and I said, okay, I'll fly you here. He's like, okay. I mean, he just, he didn't even, he didn't even pause. So I flew them here and picked them up a couple days ago. And I think they've been having a good time. Yes, been having a very good time. And I'm honored that they're here. And they're gonna tell their story. But I'm gonna turn that over to Nick and he's gonna run the rest of the program. But I want to give Kevin a gift because just recently, oh, and I texted him and I said, I have a gift for you and it has to do with a famous person. So at first he played it very cool, but then now since he's been there, he's like, so uh, is this a musician? No. Is this an actor? No. He's like, all right, I think you need to tell me. I said, no, I'm not telling you. So he keeps bringing up all these people. Well, now you're going to find out. Just recently, uh, the Veterans Breakfast Club hosted a after party for an author named Sebastian Junger, which some of you vets probably know. He, he's the one that uh, wrote the book A Perfect Storm in which George Clooney did a movie. He also did a uh, documentary called Restrepo and Korangal, which was about Afghanistan army combat vets 
It is fascinating. I highly, highly suggest that you watch it. And he also wrote a book called War about that. He just recently wrote a book called Tribe, which has something to do with that, that subject. And I'm not going to go into it, but I, I went to hear him speak, and I got an extra book just for Kevin. And I said, Sebastian, I told him about Kevin, and I said, I would like for you to say something to him in this book. And, and he did. So I'm going to present you with this book, Tribe. And the only reason I didn't give anything for Daniel and I keep apologizing to him is he wasn't there when I first, yeah. So, but Daniel's so nice. He's like, it's okay, Sharon. It's okay. So here you go. Thank you. Thank you. You want to read it out loud? You want me to? You want me to read it out loud? It says, to Kevin... Best of luck walking the U.S. states, Sebastian Younger. So that's for you. So I'm going to turn this over. They're going to talk, but we're going to have one really special person come up here now and talk. But I'm going to turn it over to Nick. And we have a celebrity in the house. It's John Kolb. Stand up. He is an ex-Pittsburgh Steeler. In my opinion, in my opinion, from the greatest generation of Steelers, that's just my opinion, but he's going to come up here and talk to you all t today about a, a, a friend of his that was a Vietnam vet. Uh, I made my living running into things. I, <laughs> I don't know how that qualifies you up to the celebrity status, uh, running into things, but in Pittsburgh, people think that's cool, so I'll stay up here. In Oklahoma, where I grew up, they think it's cool, too. And uh, I, my hometown, we had 62 kids in our graduating class. And I'm in the Vietnam era. And uh, as our, my high school football team, I was doing the math as I was walking from the car, we still hold the record we graduated in 65. We still hold the record for fewest, yar fewest yards and points given up. That, that team now has grown. Their stadium uh, seats 7,000 people. We still hold the record. But the reason I tell you that is because our quarterback was killed in Vietnam. Our manager was killed in Vietnam. The guard that played next to me got shot, got well, went over, got shot again. My best friend, I'll tell you about him in a minute. That's what Sharon asked me to really talk to you about. And uh, the guy that was our halfback always used to come. He lived in Washington, D.C. He always used to come to the... Um, football games when we play in Washington, D.C. He was injured. He had a 105 howitzer that blew up. He got hit with the mortar, blew up, and landed on his leg. He didn't lose his leg, but he was never able to walk right. He, uh, Alan committed suicide four weeks ago. So I'm still losing friends. So uh, I have no qualifications to stand up here uh, because I ran into things. But I wanted to tell you that uh, I got a call several years ago from uh, uh, the state of Oklahoma has a Hall of Fame. And Mickey Mantle's in it for old, older people. Mickey Mantle's from Oklahoma, Roger Maris. And they said, we, we, you got voted into this thing. And I thought, Mickey Mantle, John Cole, in the same, <laughs> I'll, I'll show up for that. So they, they send me a ticket and I go down there and uh, my hometown has a, has a John Cole day. You know, and all 62 kid graduating people show up for that. <laughs> and, uh, but my best friend, I wanted to tell you, 
I got a scholarship to Oklahoma State University. As I was trying to say, my friends got scholarships to Vietnam. And Gary and I, from the time we were in the fourth grade, we went fishing constantly. If we weren't on a football field, we were fishing somewhere. If we weren't working out, we were, we were floating down a river fishing somewhere. And so we promised before he left for Vietnam that when we, you know, I would write him all the time. I wrote him three letters. And then when he came back, that we were going to get together and go on a fishing trip. Well, he, when he came back, we went on a fishing trip, and he never talked to me. He just sat in the boat, never said a word, just sat there. So I'm so mature that I said, well, if he's not going to talk to me, I'm not talking to him. That's, that's how mature I am. So I never saw him for 30 years. And he shows up walking across the field for my John Kolb day. I look up, and there he is coming across the field. And so we hugged, and we were talking, and we were catching up. And I said, hey, they're having a, they're having a dinner at the Outback State House. Can you come? And so we were talking. And, and so that night, he was taking me back to my hotel. And I'm walking out. And I look on his car. I just, you can't help it. You know, I'm walking to his car. And on the back of his car, it said Bronze Star on his license plate. And I thought, Bronze Star. You, you all understand what I'm trying to say? John Kolb Day, you know, because I run into things. And, and so, uh, I, you know, I still don't get it. I say, Gary, Bronze Star, that's, that's cool. <laughs> that's not cool. That's, I don't know what it is. It's, it's brave. It's awesome. And, uh, and I said, what happened? To this day, all I know is this is what he said. There was an ambush, and a lot of guys didn't come home. That's all I know. That was five years ago. We talk twice a month. That's still all I know is there was an ambush, and a lot of guys don't come, didn't come home. And so when I went to that banquet the next day, all my, I had Gary there. And the other guys that were nominated into the Hall of Fame, I wanted to, before I sit down, I want to tell you this. The Oklahoma Hall of Fame, they talked about how many home runs they hit, how many touchdowns they scored, how much they bench pressed. They talked about that. Um, for my talk, I got up and I asked Gary to stand up. And I talked about Gary. And I said the same thing. You got my speech. And I can tell you this, the next day in the front page of the Daily Oklahoman, not just the sports page, there was a picture of Gary Southern, rightly so. So I just come here tonight, this afternoon, this evening, whatever it is, with the same heart to thank you, to honor you. Uh, I, all I have ever done is run into things. And you guys, um, there's an ambush. And thank God you got to come home. I, God bless you. I just want to thank one person that I forgot to thank because he's behind me who has been so instrumental in helping this to come through, and that is Tom Flynn right here, and he is the owner of the 444 Avenue of the Flags. He's a paratrooper, uh, Army. He's an amazing person. He has been wonderful to me, and like those others I mentioned, he's helped me so much tonight. And the only reason I failed to mention you is because you were behind me. <laughs> Sheriff, you want to come up for a minute? Sheriff works for the chamber here. Uh, we've got a breakfast coming up. 
another Veterans Breakfast Club event, and Sharon's going to talk about that a little bit. Don't go too far, Tom. You're next. Thanks. Just wanted to touch base with how Sharon and I kind of got connected and got into you know a lot of different things, but. Sharon has been a true friend, and a, she's been been there for me through a lot of things, and hopefully I've been there for her for a few things as well. And um, she's always inviting me to shows and different things. And in Pittsburgh, when I worked there, I was in the tourism industry, and I was in the craft beer tourism industry, which uh, I discovered uh, pretty quickly was very, very um, connected to a lot of 9-11 veterans, because the craft beer industry was something that they would get involved in because it was something fun and lighthearted compared to what they had been dealing with. And one of the people that I had spoken to right at the beginning when all that started to, to spill out was Jake Volker, who owns the Voodoo Homestead, and Voodoo is part of the owner of Voodoo Brewing in Meadville, and now Erie. And I remember he and I would meet weekly to talk about things with craft beer, and he started to share a little bit of stuff that he went through. He has two bronze stars, I believe, and um, he was sharing some of the things. And as he was sharing them, I remember he told me, and I, I, you know, you know, I just sit there, you know, you don't say a word, you just listen. And he was, and I, and, and he would tell me, you know, even my family doesn't hear this because you don't want your family to hear it. But strangers, it's a little easier, you know. Um, so anyhow, because of that, in Pittsburgh, we was involved with transportation. We started to really, anytime any veterans organization came around, we would just donate the transportation. And we just wanted to be very supportive of whatever was going on. And this organization at Project 22 came to town. I'm not sure if, I'm sure some of you are familiar with it. Um, statistically, 22 veterans take their own lives every day, more than double. Um, civilians. And so I invited Sharon, who always invited me to Broadway shows and things like that in Pittsburgh. I said, you know what, let's go to this. And from that point, the Sharon has been just 100% passionate about doing things that she can for veterans. In the meantime, um, I ended up moving up here. I wanted to continue to do and be supportive of anything for veterans. And Mercer County has a lot going on for veterans. We're just trying to help support it. Um, this this uh, Sharon brought before me the Veterans Breakfast Club, very excited to be a part of this. So we decided as a chamber, this could be a great chamber initiative for Mercer County. So we are um, doing this veterans breakfast. We are, all, we're doing, all we're doing is, is putting it on. It's for everyone else. Um, Todd's gonna come up and speak about it. And it's gonna be the first Saturday in November, free, open to the public. But we're also making sure that there's tables for all the wonderful veteran organizations that can put all their information out there and put it in front of other people. Um, and also it's a way of getting coverage to highlight the needs of veterans and also all the things that are out there for veterans. Anyhow, I want to make sure we do have flyers. I've said enough, but anyhow, just want to make sure you all know about that November 5th. Thanks. Thanks, Sheriff. Tom Flynn is a very cool guy, super cool guy, in fact. Uh, do you want to tell us a little bit about what you guys are doing out in Hermitage? Absolutely. Hi, everybody. Back in 2005, uh, we built the War on Terror Veterans Memorial right in the center of the flags at America's Cemetery. And with the, the original flags, it was the symbol of America held hostage, so we were used to a lot of publicity and cover of time and all that stuff. But when we built the War on Terror Memorial, my concern really was to let the veterans and the people involved in in the war to know that we cared as a nation we cared and we cared very deeply so we built the memorial and it's all lettered on the property we have our own etching machine so for 11 years now we have been adding names 
And I kept thinking if we could just do something that we could get the word out there on it. And fortunately, walking my dogs through Buell Park, I met this young man named Andrew Pavlik who works up at the East Center there. And uh, we started, I said, Andrew, what do you do? And he said, well, I'm a digital artist. And I said, well, what's that? He said, I do 3D. I went, oh. So would you have lunch with me? And he did indeed, and I took him up to the memorial, and I said, is there anything we can do? And he said, yeah, I think there's something we can do. So last night, we put the finishing touches on the virtual war on terror. So when you go home tonight, and I do have cards here, if you just go to warontear.org because it is a foundation, and you just scroll across and you'll see virtual memorial. And you give it about a minute to load, and what is going to come up is on the laptop here. And we have a search function. So you could search, uh, I searched uh, 10th Mountain Division, of which Nick is a proud member and is an incredible outfit, and it automatically came up with the names of everyone from the 10th Mountain Division who has been killed in the war. And then in this search function, you can enter a name, like right here we could do Michael Marzano, and what would come up would be the military information on Michael Marzano, who was a Marine. So it would have the age, uh, the unit, the you know Marine Corps, where the incident occurred, it is about 12 different fields. And then you can go to the next one and you can actually click on it and his name on the memorial comes up. And on Tuesday of next week, I meet with the gentleman who started Legacy.com and for you Pittsburgh folks and everything, you know it's 80% of the people that die, their obituary is on Legacy.com. And they have, for since 01, they have, they have their own site on there that you can look for the, the people who have died in Afghanistan and Iraq. So hopefully my buddy will give me that information. So it won't just be the military information, but it'll also be the hometown newspapers and the obituaries and pictures. So once we get that, the next step is going to be to get the passwords out to the families so they can begin entering the story of these young men and women on there. And uh, we think it's really special. We're finally able to go out there. And I would invite everybody before you leave, just stop and take a look at it. Brian was kind enough to hook all this stuff up for me. And I just take a look at it when you go home, warontear.org. Thank you all very, very much. Thanks, Tom. George Metz, where are you? Hey, George, you want to tell us a little bit about your foundation? Two minutes, and then I want to talk about Two? it. Two? Okay. Hi, my name's George Metz. I'm the director of the Michael Novosel Foundation. Mr. Novosel grew up in Etna. He was Art Rooney's caddy, seen Babe Ruth at his last home run at Forbes Field. He served in three different wars. He flew dust off in Vietnam, father and son with a father and son that flew together. The son gets shot down, dad rescues him a week later, dad gets shot down, the son rescues him. 
And he, they saved over 8,000 servicemen. That's the short story of Mr. Novacell. His son and I became friends, and we started a foundation that takes care of garden reservists coming back from Iraq and Afghanistan. We take care of rent, car payments, utilities, things like that. And 100% of the money the foundation takes in goes to taking care of veterans. There is no money used for anything else, no administrative costs, nothing. I have to use the money for that period. So anything we do, it's either out of pocket or somebody gave us something, uh, and that's how it works. And any veteran that's uh, in Garden Reserve, it needs help, they contact me. Junior wanted it done in a very fast manner. Literally, if you contact me at 8 o'clock in the morning, by 12 or 1 o'clock in the afternoon, you can be taken care of. And it isn't like some organizations, well, if you called us at 8 o'clock, uh, we, we can take care of you. But being that you called at 10 o'clock, we can't take care of you. And if you had a blue shirt on, you know, you qualify. And because if you don't, you don't qualify. And some of those vets know what I'm talking about here. So that's the way the foundation works. And we run 24-7. And I'm the director, and everything comes to me. And so I'm the one that makes the decisions. And uh, I would definitely, if you vets look up Mr. Novacell, this guy spent 44 years in the military and served in three wars. And he's an amazing, amazing man. So George may not look like much now, but he uh, used to be a tough guy himself. Yeah. George was a door gunner in Vietnam. And yeah, big deal. I love, I love talking to older veterans because I hear the stories about the way the Army, the Navy, the Marine Corps used to be and how foreign that is to me now. Uh, so uh, I guess it was last week sometime we were talking on the phone and he was talking about how they would fly on night missions. And I was like, oh, I didn't know they had night vision goggles back then. He's like, they did not. So can you tell me a little bit about that, about flying? How did you know what to shoot at and what not to shoot at? Well, it was very, very hard to figure that out. The person that was shooting at me, I shot at them. Fair enough. You know, I'm not real bright, so <laughs> that was easy to determine. But we, we flew at night, and uh, when we'd go into a, a landing zone in LZ, the, all we had on the aircraft was the landing lights. And that's what they used to get in and get out of. And Mr. Novacell went to pick up some wounded uh, Special Forces people in the middle of the night, during a, a typhoon, and they were vectored in with a flashlight. And he went in and picked up the wounded and got them out of there. And that's basically what we did at night. And they had the starlight missions where they had a big spotlight on one aircraft, and they'd fly over and wait for, uh, try to find the NVA, turn the spot bit, this big spotlight on, and there'd be a couple gunships with them. And the NVA would start shooting at the helicopter with the big spotlight on, and the gunships would go in and light up the people that were shooting at them. You know, this is not rocket science. Shoot at me, look at here, there they come. So, you know, you get out there and you play dummy. And uh, like I said, I had a fun job till I had a bad day at the office and we were limousine service for the special forces. We were taking the teams in to Cambodia, which I was never there. We were taking the teams into Cambodia and bringing them back out. And that's basically what I did the whole time I was in. And it was, like I said, a fun job till I had a bad day at the office. How long did you do in the army? I was in 13 months in Vietnam. I spent 19 months in the Army. No desire to be a lifer after your no. experience in Vietnam? No? <laughs> no. I had about enough of them with uh, some of the nonsense that went on, and I just wasn't, I didn't play well with others. <laughs> Fair enough. Thanks, George. Thank you. 
I want to thank Todd and that for having this. It's been, I go to a lot of them. I try to get to two or three of them every, every month when my schedule lets me. And you're doing a great job, Todd. And I really appreciate what you've done. Joe, you want to come up real quick? Uh, I know you want to talk about Armed Forces Day a little bit. Joe is also a Vietnam veteran. We will get to that in a moment. By the way, I want to say something about John Cole before anything else. He's a celebrity because he ran over people really well. He hit them well. But, but more than that, he, delivers, he deserves to be a celebrity for everything he has done since he was in the, in the Steelers. He's a wonderful man, uh, great speaker, uh, physical therapist, splendid man. Okay, Armed Forces Day is the third Saturday in May every year. And for the past two years, well, when, when Bill Farms had their, uh, Bill Farm Park had their 100th anniversary, they wanted to do more events than what they were doing. So somebody had spotted on the calendar Armed Forces Day. Well, we should do something there. So their idea probably was to have a concert or something like that. Well, a couple of years before that, I had been trying to organize a thing called Celebrate America. And uh, so I had this huge package of stuff. And when we did Celebrate America before, we had concerts all day long, and we had all veterans organizations in. We had a whole vend food vendors and a whole lot of things going on. So I walk we walked into there. Donnelly Sheets is the one that sh they asked, and she immediately called me. But anyways, we set up this thing where, for the past two years in Buell Park, we have done Celebrate America, started out mostly by celebrating the armed forces, and it's still largely that. But this year we decided to expand it more into celebrating all good things American. And we need help with it. Um, basically, we need volunteers. Uh, among the things that I want to do, most specifically talk about here, is we want to create a boot camp for kids so that they can get some sense of what the military is, some respect for it and whatever. You know, have a bunch of stations like uh, manual of arms, rifle, uh, making a bed, throwing grenades, just all kinds of things. I'd like to have like about 12 stations. And what we are doing offering you is an opportunity to be a drill sergeant for a day. We need volunteers, we, want, we need people at every station. Stephanie Mong back here, we, we started putting one together, but last year the rain wiped out everything. But we also will need a lot more preparation for it. We need to build, build a few things. Uh, and we need people there at each station, and you can have a whole lot of fun with this. I'm eventually thinking of hoping to expand it into like a Buell Brigade or something like that that goes continuously. The first year they go through the boot camp, they're PFC. Second year they go through, they're our corporal. And just continue it to have it be an, an organization that they can be proud of, that they can do well. Um, so that's pretty much what it is about. So be a drill sergeant. So Joe, you were in the Army. Yeah. What year did you join? I went in in 1963 through Gannon ROTC. And you were stationed in Germany. Stationed in Germany. Volunteered to go to Vietnam. Volunteered to go to Vietnam. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. Why the hell would you do that? <laughs> well, I believe in volunteering. When I, when I joined the Army, when I went, 
with ROTC, you get a choice of branch. Well, I made a tough choice. You know, some of them choose like, you know, intelligence and so forth that are hard to get into. I picked infantry because, idiot, I, I believe that's the Army. I mean, that's what you do when you're in the Army, in my opinion. So I volunteered for that. And uh, I volunteered for everything. And it always turned out well. In the Army, they say, don't volunteer. I say, bull crap. Volunteer, because it'll get you where you want to go. So then I volunteered to Vietnam because I went in the Army. That's, you know, I knew that's what the Army was about, and that's one of the reasons I did it. The other reason I was, was hoping that if I went, some married person might not have to. The ir irony in that is, before I went to Vietnam, I got married. So <laughs> that didn't work out too well. But anyways, the first year of our marriage, uh, my wife was in Australia and I was in Vietnam. So we did the first year of our marriage without a single argument. How many people could say that? Hey, thanks, Joe. Dan and Kevin, you guys wanna? All right, I shared mention earlier, these guys are doing the walk across the country. Kevin, you want to open it up? You were Army, Afghanistan. What unit? Yeah, I was with the 2nd Cavalry Regiment out of Vilsack, Germany. No, it's perfect. It's okay. Uh, whatever. <laughs> you went to, when did you go to Afghanistan? I was in Afghanistan May 2010 to May 2011. When did you get out of the Army? I got out of the Army in September 2014. So it's been a little while before you were out and you started to take the walk. What spurred you to do this? Uh, I actually wasn't settling into civilian life very well at all. I went to Paris, France in December of 2015 to join the Foreign Legion. And while I was in Paris, a friend of mine, Hemwall, who I deployed with, he gave me the idea to do this walk because something he'd always wanted to do was walk around the country and kind of raise awareness for all the issues that veterans face but he's not able to do the walk because while we were in Afghanistan, he took AK fire and ended up losing his leg about a year later to complications. So he wasn't able to do the walk and I thought it was a good idea. I flew back from Paris to the US to Nebraska and started preparing for the walk in December 2015. Started the walk August 8th of 2016 and I've been walking ever since. How far have you guys gone so far? We've been through all of New England, so we got into Queens, New York, and Sharon actually flew us from Queens to here to do this event, and we're flying back to Queens on Wednesday to continue the walk from there. And Dan, when did you join and why did you join uh, Kevin? Um, I joined him in uh, Gilson, New Hampshire. I was volunteering at a farm called the Dysfunctional Veteran Farm, and uh, I saw some uh, news article about him came across my Facebook feed while I was after work in the, in the basement playing video games. And I was like, oh, that's pretty awesome. I got to check it out. And then I saw he was starting in Maine and then coming through New Hampshire right where the farm was. So I messaged him on Facebook and I was like, hey, man, do you need somebody to walk around the country with? And he said, yeah, I think I might need somebody. And then uh, he stopped by the farm, uh, recovered from a bit of a foot injury for a couple of days, and then... Uh, we took off towards Brattleboro, Vermont in uh, three days after that, and then we just kept on walking through New England. What's the route you're taking? <laughs> We're trying to head south before winter gets here. Smart move. <laughs> this is basically our, our game plan. 
How long do you guys expect that it's going to take you? Uh, it's going to take around two years, most likely, um, give or take, because depending on how many events we do, how many people we end up talking to, how many people message us, say, hey, you should come out here. Uh, the main message is to spread the word and really do some good. And the secondary objective is to, you know, do it in a timely manner. So the time doesn't really matter very much. It'll probably end up at this point taking about two and a half years. And how many, how many miles a day are you averaging? Uh, we average between 15 and 20 miles a day, depending on weather, terrain, you know, things like that. It's a decent clip. Your feet hurt? Back hurt? At first, but you get used to it. Feet callous up, back gets used to it. The muscles you don't really use in your back toughen up, and it just gets normal. Your buddy that was hurt, where's he at? Um, Himwall is actually in Michigan. He runs the Michigan chapter of Operation Second Chance. So he was going to be here today, but he actually had a fundraiser this weekend for his charity, so he wasn't able to make it down here. So are you guys going to head south and then come back up to Michigan to go visit him? Um, the route we're taking is we're going down the east coast, across the south, up the west coast, across the north, and we're going to spiral into my home of Nebraska. So we're doing circular pattern and hitting all 48 states. Nebraska will be state 48. Nice, nice. Uh, your Facebook page, if people want to check it out, what you're doing? Yeah, the Facebook page is My Walk for Veterans. We update it every morning when we step off and every evening when we settle down. Every evening we put up a GPS screenshot of where we're at and every time we complete one leg of the journey, which is from one state to another. So we'll get to a city that we planned out in one state and we'll plot the trek to the next city in the next state and then we'll post that and the route when we do that very cool thanks guys appreciate you coming out no appreciate thank, you very, thank you very much thanks, thanks. all right next up we've got um a marine mike zimmerman and i would see so you're a marine so i would argue that you kind of got paid to run into things too right like that was sort of your job as well when did you join I joined in 2000. 2000. What month? October. October. Okay. You went to basic training. <clears throat> what was your MOS? I was 6433 avionics. Avionics. All right. And you went to Afghanistan, Iraq. I went to Iraq in 2004 with the 11th Mew and then was detached from avionics and attached to regimental combat team one for detainee operations. So where, were you, where in Iraq were you guys? I was in Al-Assad in West Anbar for the first month and a half or so, and then uh, transferred down to Fallujah for the second battle. How old were you at the time? 22. What's Fallujah like for a 22-year-old? It's pretty dis... <laughs> it's intense, huh? Yeah. So what did you do while you were there? So my job while I was in Fallujah was to work in a detention facility where the 3rd Marine Raider Battalion would go out through the city and do their job and they would bring everyone back to us, and we were sort of like a human intel sorting center. So I worked with FBI, CIA, uh, CIS, CID, and a couple other alphabet agencies, and I was a detention center guard, so my day-to-day my -day stuff was to bring in indoctrinate, you know, indoctrination, do um, people search for contraband, and then escort you know to and from interrogation, to and from medical appointments, or 
part of what our detention facility did was, uh, like I said, a sorting center. So our ROE, our rules of engagement at the time, was generally um, if you were alive, you were being brought in. And it was our job to sort through who was the, the local native that was just wrong place, wrong time, and the actual bad guy. So this was, you said, oh... 2004. 2004. This is the Battle of Fallujah? Yes, this was during the Battle of Fallujah. And so if anyone's not aware, Battle of Fallujah is probably the most famous post-Vietnam Marine Corps battle. There are two extremely um, well-known battles post-Vietnam, and that's the, the second Battle of Fallujah. So for those of you who don't know, 2004 was an extremely rocky time for Iraq. Uh, the first Battle of Fallujah, the town of Fallujah is approximately, I want to say, 40 miles southwest of Baghdad, out in the Ambar Desert area. Um, it was a huge train stop facility for Iraq, so there was a lot of movement in and out. So when Saddam came to power in the 70s, he, he decentralized and really you know, shut down a lot of things and um, also created a, a major highway that bypassed Fallujah. So the train was pretty much obsolete and after the invasion uh, and the insurgency took off, they they established themselves as a stronghold in the town of Fallujah because it was a bypass city off the, off the main highways. And in April of 2004, during the first battle to try and retake that um, area for strategic purposes is when the insurgents, um, they killed the civilian contractors and there was a major publicity thing. Then in between was the Abu Ghraib scandal. Abu Ghraib was one of the biggest prisons in Iraq, and that's a pretty well-known uh, scandal at this point. And so during the aftermath of Abu Ghraib in the first battle, they, they put together a major plan to retake the city. And that's where I was called in because my original job with the 11th Marine Expeditionary Unit was to be offshore helicopter maintenance, but because they were doing this major push, they needed more people. The second battle of Fallujah is, I think, first or second to 2006 Ramadi as one of the bloodiest hand-to-hand and street-to-street, um, door-to-door combat that happened post-Vietnam Hoi City. I think that's where you were alluding yeah, this to. This is Vietnam. Like, this is, uh, like, hand-grenade close. This is not, like, engagements of hundreds of meters. This is, like, feet away, right? Right. This would be... Um, like a normal infrastructure, street to street, you know, house to house. So, so you said your job was, you, know, you were at the detention facility, you had to figure out who was the bad guy. Correct. Who wasn't. So, How do you do that? So the FBI came in and they had what they call the BAT system. It's a biometrics, blah, 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 speak that I don't understand. Right. And basically what they did was because a lot of people in the uh, region weren't, you know, modernized, they took a thumbprint, they took an iris scan, and they took a picture, and then they took a given name. And they created the database as people were coming through. Uh, a lot of times, the raiders that would bring people into us would give us the, you know, the collection cards, which were basically like police citations that you would see back home. So we picked this person up at this place at this time for this reason. How many folks came through? I'd say at least three or 4,000. Wow. And how many of them were deemed to be bad guys, do you think? Probably about a quarter to a third. Really? That low? 
That so will. most folks got cleared and got released back. Right. So what? what How the, hostile were they if they were deemed innocent and let go? Were they just cursing you out the whole way out the door? No. Um, to be to be honest, they were actually really really good about it. Um, so part of my job as the detainee, uh, you know, in, in this uh, detainee guard facility was to do the, the transfers. So we would take the people that were, were cleared and we would um, transport them through the city to the Fallujah train station. And at the train station, we actually had um, finance officers and personnel set up. And these people were paid for their captivity. So the, the inconvenience, so to speak. And they were, you know, once we identified, they were treated very well. We, uh, we went out of, out of our way to make sure that they had the religious materials, a Quran, a prayer rug. If we could, if we could get it for everybody, we did. But, you know, some people would have to share um, comforts and things of that nature. We were kind of the first face that they got to see that all Americans weren't bad and we didn't live up to the propaganda that they'd been fed. So this was after Abu Ghraib. So they were... Pleasantly surprised to find that that's not what you guys were doing. Yes. When they, when they heard they were coming into American captivity, their first thought was Abu Ghraib. Right. All right, so that was, that was your first deployment? That was my first deployment. Where, where was your second one? Second deployment, so I, I got out of the Marines in 2005. I moved back here, and I started going to Pitt, and I joined the uh, Army National Guard. boy. And, you know, like, like most Marines do. And um, I was stationed up at Johnstown with the medevac unit and was on deck for numerous deployments that just never went. Uh, 2008, we were supposed to go back to Iraq. They didn't go. 2010, I was on deck to go to Kosovo. They decided they were taking maintenance from another company, so they didn't take me. So 2013, I ended up going to Bagram, Afghanistan. What did you do while you were there? I fixed helicopters. So you did your job? I did my job. First time. So I haven't been to Iraq, I've only been to Afghanistan, but I've heard wonderful things about Iraq. So the, the major difference is, um, one, there's a nine-year gap between 2004 and 2013. Um, 2004, in the middle of the desert, we lived in tents. I had cots. Um, there were no bee huts, there were no chews. There, I mean, the, the air base had them and some people got them, but for the most part, I lived, I lived in a tent that was about as big as this barn with like 70, 80 other people. There was no internet, there were no phone calls. Every now and then you could go and there was like a tent and you could use a pay phone, but you would stand in line for two or three hours for a 15, 20 minute call. Right. And if something were happening in the city, because we, the compound we were at, we were about three and a half miles southeast of the actual city. So if things were happening, they would just cut everything, all transmission. 2013, Afghanistan, Bagram was a huge built-up base. So the Bagram Air Base is actually part of the international airport that's in uh, Bagrami. One side was international flights coming in and out, Lear jets, small commuter planes, and uh, large cargo. The other side was military, Air Force, cargo, Air Force, C-17, C-5s. And then I worked the helicopters, and we did, um, we did cargo, we did troop transport, and uh, my primary role was to fix the executive helicopters. So heads of state, commanders, battlefield commanders, generals, people of that nature were, were my major clientele. The base in Afghanistan had Popeye's chicken, a couple green beans coffee. Dairy Queen. Uh, no Dairy Queen. No? They got rid of it? They got rid of it. Burger King. 
They had three different massage parlors. So, it, it, yeah. Sounds professional. But, so when I say these things, they, they, they conjure an image of luxury, but they were really rustic in, in how they were presented. They were <laughs> basically the back of semi-trailers that were converted for these type of things. I've never heard it put quite that way, but I like that. That's good. So you, that was 2013, you're out now? I'm out now. What do you do now? Now I'm a marriage and family therapist for combat veterans with the Pittsburgh Vet Center. Very well. Yeah, it's very cool. And uh, thank you. I always like to clarify this, right? Like the vet center, part of the VA, technically. Technically. But it's awesome, so it's not. So, a little bit about the vet center. It was started in 1979 by a bunch of Vietnam veterans who were not happy with the care they were getting from the VA. So what we ended up becoming from 1979 all the way up until 93 or 4, I believe, the vet center was outpatient mental health and readjustment for Vietnam veterans only. That was it. Nobody else was allowed. It was like a veterans club for Vietnam, and that was it. After the Gulf War, they started to you know, open the doors a little bit more, and they've now broadened to the only eligibility is either an Expeditionary Service Medal of some form, whether it's the Global War on Terrorism, the Marine Corps, the uh, Army or Armed Forces, or a Campaign Medal, being Vietnam, Iraq. Uh, we still have World War II and Korea veterans that we do a group with in Oakland. Outstanding. And we have a totally different records-keeping system. We have a totally different uh, command shed. We're part of the VA, but we're, we're the best kept secret. How does someone get an appointment there if they want one? The easiest way would be to, if it was the Pittsburgh area, just call. One of the things that we're really good about, every counselor there, we're all veterans. Um, my boss is a ranger, captain. He was in the uh, 2003 push in Iraq. One of my co-workers is a Marine who then switched over to Florida Army National Guard, so we have that in common. Um, he was infantry, he was in the push in Iraq. Uh, the other guy was infantry in the 90s, no combat, but still. We do all of our own scheduling. So you call in, you get the first available counselor that's not doing anything, and we schedule right on the spot. Generally, we can get you within a day or two, if not a week at best. And you're gonna stick around a little while afterwards, so if anybody wants to talk to you, Absolutely. you'll be here to give out a card. Or... Yeah, and being from, you know, being up in the Mercer County area, one of the things that I wanna point out is our vet center services, there's a vet center in Green Tree, which is where I work, and there's one in McKeesport, which is out past, um, you know, out by Monroeville area, that side of the city. And the next closest one is Erie. So what I've done is I've partnered with the Butler VA. I have extended the vet center up to Butler. I have clients from Mercer and a couple counties up this way as well. So if making a trek to Pittsburgh is difficult, I can, I can accommodate and come and see people at Butler. Very cool. Thanks, Mike. And I got one last question for you, then I'll let you go. So my boss, Todd here. Yes. Uh, Yale guy, really bright sometimes. He, he oftentimes asks these really dumb questions of veterans, right? So you'll have a guy that's talking about being 19 at Normandy, and Todd will say something like, well, golly, were you scared? Uh, of course he was scared. That's a stupid question. Right. So with that in mind, what's the dumbest My, slash, do you need to defend Well, I was yourself, just going to say, I say a lot more dumb <laughs> questions than that. That's I, true. That's, I don't want to embarrass you too bad. Was boot camp hard? I'll say to a Marine. How was the food? Yeah. 
right. So right. I will answer the question about the food. Um, I was at Butler yesterday, and they had a stand-down event for homeless veterans, which is really awesome. They put together really good care packages, boots, sleeping bags, things to, to you know, kind of equip a, a homeless person to survive the winter. And they had the um, canvas tents up, and I remarked to uh, our outreach worker, Ryan All, that it reminded me of the barbecue defect. Defect is a dining facility. Every day, barbecue, that's all I served. Yeah, that was a luxury we did not have. That was it. That was the, yeah, so you could go to the crappy army defect, which served garbage. You could go to the barbecue defect. We could make the four mile trek around the other side of the post and go to the Air Force suite. Oh, of course. Of course. Hey, thanks, Mike. Appreciate it. Patty? So, Patricia Gerhauser, Navy veteran. When did you join the Navy? Um, I joined in 2007. Why the Navy? Um, <laughs> because it was safer than the other branches, I felt, and also because it gave me the opportunity to travel. And did you get to travel? I did. Where'd you go? I went to Spain, I went to Italy, I went to um, Oman, I went to Bahrain, I went to UAE, I went to Seychelles, Djibouti, Africa, Kenya. I went to none of those places. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, you didn't <laughs> travel in the Army so much. You got to travel a little bit, but they were very specific places. Yeah. Um, you were in the Persian Gulf, uh, and this was... 2008. 2008. What were you doing out there? Um, we were with Carrier Strike Group. Um, I was on a cruiser, a station on the USS Gettysburg, and the role of a cruiser in a... Um, a battle group is to protect the carrier, the asset of the carrier. So we're the ship with all the missiles and all the um, radars and stuff. And we just, um, I operated an air search radar. So my job was um, to watch this radar blimp countless hours every day. And if I saw anything inbound towards any of the ships in this um, battle group, I was supposed to um, provide counterattack for that and shoot some missiles out, which I never had to do, thankfully. But So you, you miss all the fun stuff? Yeah, it was unexciting. <laughs> so how long, when you would go out on ship, how long would you be out for? Um, I did two deployments, six months each. So the, the one in the Persian Gulf was about six months. And then um, I did another one. Um, the second one was a UN task force um, mission. So we were paired with um, a bunch of other countries that were doing the anti-piracy operations in the Gulf of Aden, which is the gulf between um, Yemen and Somalia. And um, for that specific deployment, we were the flagship for the UN task force. So we had um, a bunch of militaries on board, actually. And so for that, um, basically we patrolled um, a certain area that we were allocated in that um, area and looked for um, pirating vessels. And um, we did catch quite a few. Um, we ended up capturing 30 suspected pirates that we transported down to Kenya to stand trial. And you were telling me you were present for a specific incident. Uh, they made a movie about it with Tom Hanks. Uh, Mayor Alabama was yeah, taken no, over. So, yeah, it was taken over. And you were, your boat was there. You haven't seen the movie. I, I purposely did not the watch point, the movie. Right? Yes. I didn't want to see the muck-up job that Hollywood did of the thing I actually experienced. So. Did you enjoy your time in the Navy? Certain aspects of it, yes. What would you like? I liked meeting people from all over the world, essentially, by the time I was all said and done, but especially just from different areas of the United States. I loved the travel, and um, I also liked 
specifically um, the deployment we did for the UN task force, um, I found it very interesting. Um, because we weren't in the per Persian Gulf, um, I actually got to volunteer for certain pirate um, task force that we were doing um, aboard the ship where you had extra duties on top of what your primary role was on the ship. So I got to do um, intake with some of the pirates we caught where um, we take fingerprints and photos and then um, sit down and do an interview with them. And it was interesting to me because um, a lot of the people we were capturing from these um, pirate ships, the suspected pirates, during these interviews would disclose to us that they weren't pirates at all, that um, there were only maybe two out of the 10 men aboard the ship were pirates, and the rest of them were just fishermen who um, their boat had been taken over by the pirates, and the pirates were forcing them to navigate the area for them while they went out and tried to capture the cargo ships. And um, they told us, you know, our families are being held hostage back in Somalia by these pirates if we don't do what we're told and allow them to use our boats and our GPS devices. And so um, I found that interesting and sad at the same time. Um, it was just a really unique and uh, life-changing experience to interact with these people and to hear their stories and to be a part of the whole thing. What didn't you like about the Navy? <sighs> um, and we are pressed for time, so okay. briefly. <laughs> I didn't like the misogynistic culture I experienced in the Navy. <laughs> I know that's kind of harsh language, but that was my experience in the Navy, and I think it is the experience of a lot of women in the Navy. I don't think that women were integrated very successfully into the Navy. And I know that since I've got out, I got out in 2011, there have been quite a few um, steps taken to hopefully change that and change the prevalence of sexual assault that takes place. Um, specifically, in that branch in the Marine Corps is the highest, so. So how long, how many years did you do? Four. Four? Uh, so we have a good friend in the VBC, Ben Stahl, he was a Navy guy, and he said that he loved basic training because they taught you how to wear bell bottoms and dance with a mop. Was that ex your experience as well? No. Uh, my experience of boot camp, actually, it was nothing like I expected it to be, um, and my perception going in was just everything you see in the movies, right? You know, it's supposed to be like they break you down and it's hardcore and you're working out constantly. I remember being bored most of the time in boot camp, to be honest. Um, it was mostly uh, just memorization of information, and I was actually kind of surprised by that. So. so it was just, eh? Eh. That's what I've heard as well. It's yeah. just, eh. eh. <laughs> Final question. Uh, so as I said, Todd asked some real dumb stuff. What's the dumbest thing or weirdest thing you've heard from a civilian about your service? The weirdest thing? Um, I don't know if I would say it's, well, it is really weird that someone would come up and ask me this, but um, I had a perfect stranger come up and ask me one time um, when she found out that I was in the military or in the Navy, she uh, said, were you ever sexually assaulted? <laughs> and I didn't know this person from anyone. <laughs> and I was just very shocked and um, taken aback that she would 
come up and ask someone that. Strange assumption. Yes, she, yes. Well, strange assumption. I mean, I, I told her, I said, I was like, well, you know, I'm happy that you're familiar with the statistics surrounding this issue, but you really should not go up to someone you don't know and ask that question. How did she respond to that answer? Um, she actually seemed kind of confused by it, which I don't know. So you were both confused. Well, that's good. <laughs> yeah. All right. Thanks, Patty. Appreciate yep, it. Thank you. Drew Wood. Drew is in the 82nd Airborne in Iraq. Drew, thanks for coming up, man. So you were Cav Scout. Yes. And you were 82nd Iraq. It was Iraq. Yes. When'd you go? See, we closed it out, so it would have been 2011. 2011. So a year? Not quite. Not quite a year. Not quite. We left in uh, May, and we were back literally like December 22nd. Oh, that's not too bad. So what did you do while you were there? Well, to what everybody thinks the deployment is, ours was everything in reverse because it was drawdown and everything. So when we got there, we had uh, Osset Air Base, and then we were there for about a month doing the acclimation and everything else, and then moved to Baghdad into VBC. Essentially, while we were there, we just did missions securing the main routes for everybody that was in the northern portion through Baghdad. And then uh, once they finally closed down that portion, we moved to like a little, it was a shared uh, joint force with the US and the Iraqi army had a portion of it. Um, on the edge. From there, once they finally closed down the entire complex, we moved to uh, the green zone with the, uh, the consulate was across the street, and then we finally drove to Kuwait. So you guys were on the move basically the whole nine, 11 months, whatever. Pretty you didn't much really so. have a, a permanent home at all? We were in Baghdad the longest. While we were at al-Assad, we did, uh, as odd as it sounds, trained the Iraqi army for like marksmanship, was actually what my platoon was, was tasked with. Probably the toughest job in the army to teach Iraqi soldiers how to shoot straight. You, you didn't, it was, everybody knows the, the universal target puncher to get them to pass. Everybody knows that it's the pen. Just put a hole in it, turn it in and get your pass. Yeah, everybody yeah. passed. So what but, was it like, so you guys were going out doing just like recon patrols, like? Pretty much, uh, we did a few. The counter IED stuff? A few, a few counter IEDs, a few, uh, shot a, a couple rockets, but I mean, most of it was just presence and then security stuff for the convoys moving south. So what was that? Because like, so my first tour in Afghanistan, we were there 15 months in the same spot. And over the course of time, you get to know the area very, very well. How difficult is it to constantly be moving to a new town, new roads, new MSR names, uh, new threats? Was that challenging, frustrating, stressful? Not really. We didn't run anything out of al-Assad. That was pretty much just, just the whole working with whatever unit came out to the range that day. So we only had to run missions out of VBC. And even the, the consulate was only... Uh, 30-minute drive, 40-minute drive. So I mean, and once we moved there, we weren't on any missions. Like by the time when we left, when they left, when they closed DBC, everybody was already through from the north. So we were cleared from there. So it wasn't too difficult as far as the, the missions were all running the same same location. Sure. So this was 2011, you said? Yeah. Uh, and then you came back. You went back to Bragg. When did you get out? Got out uh, end of 2013. Why'd you get out? Well, Iraq just closed. No, there's gonna be a drawdown coming. Uh, that and I knew I didn't want to be a scout then for however long, but uh, wanted to go to school. Wanted to actually do something else. You're going to school now? Yes. What are you going to school for? Right now, living in Pittsburgh, going to the Pittsburgh Gunsmith School uh, to, to be a master gunsmith. Um, it's got to be the coolest thing you could ever want to do, man. Yeah. I wish I could. Work with guns all day. My wife's here. Can I not, can I just drop out and do that? I'd rather do that. But, um, so what was your basic training experience like? When did you go to basic? Oh, nine. Oh, nine. How was that? I was, uh, Straight out of high school into basic training. Um, well, my dad uh, was 
got out in 91. But I mean, I had his stories to go on. Very similar, very similar actually. It was, was more of what I would have expected, not, not what we hear now. But I did a, uh, it was an OSUD. It was all nine weeks plus my AIT done on one spot, same drill sergeants. All the drill sergeants were also CAV. Where do you guys do basic? Well, I did it at Knox, when the Armor Center was the Armor Center, not an infantry blue tank. So agony, misery, heartbreak. Yes. Yeah, I went there too. That sucks. That yeah. was awful. Yeah, heartbreak is, is definitely that. Dude, it was rough. Basic training, like, it just sucks. Everyone knows that. Like, sometimes drill sergeants say, like, really funny stuff. Uh, you're trying your damnedest to not laugh, but it's almost impossible. Do you, like, remember any, like, some of the, just, was the funniest thing you remember a drill sergeant saying? Obviously not to you, because what's happening to you is not funny at all. They all had their own line. Each one of them had something that would, would get somebody almost all the time. I can't pick any one of them out that stood out the most because you're always just trying to ignore everything just so you don't. But then one of you snickers and then you're all Somebody does. Right? Well, everybody's pushing anyway, so it doesn't really matter. Right. So, making the wall sweat. All right, thanks, man. Appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks, brother. Rachel. So, Rachel was with 3rd Special Forces Group, uh, Intel officer. Yeah, by trade, yes. All right, so when did you join? Um, I joined when active duty in 2010, um, commissioned out of Drexel University. So my first taste of the military was in 2006 when I was playing Army as a cadet. So you went, where were you stationed at, Bragg? Most recently Bragg. I'm actually just about two weeks out of the Army, um, and so I was just in North Carolina a few weeks ago. And your husband's in. He's at Special Forces Q course right now. Yes, he'll graduate as a Green Beret in about two weeks. And so he's how many months into it already? Almost two years of training. And you've barely seen him in that time. Literally haven't even spoken to him for most of the first two years of our marriage. So we got another one that didn't have a fight in their first year. <laughs> uh, what, how old were you when you joined? Were you an ROTC or anything? Yes. So at 17, uh, I contracted, had to have my parents sign off on my contract to join the ROTC program at Drexel University and then commissioned as a second lieutenant at 22 um, as an intel officer. Uh, was that your first choice? It was. Um, so when I went in, um, I had a lot of the same ideas as Joe. I wanted to join the Army for a specific region, reason. It has a specific culture. And to me, when I first joined as a 17-year-old cadet, I think, I want to do infantry. Well, as I'm sure most of you know, that was not an option for me, even though I may have a warrior spirit and I know what my best talents can be served for the military, that wasn't an option for me. So the best choice for me was military intelligence because it was something that was going to open up a lot of doors for me to do the sort of things that I want to do. So your first deployment was with 3rd Special Forces Group. Yes. How was that experience being a woman attached to 3rd Group? It was incredible. It was everything that I wanted to do and why I felt called to serve. So I was part of a pilot program called the Cultural Support Team. Um, I am by no means the first woman to do this type of mission. I am standing on the shoulders of Every woman who came before me, I mean, I met Stephanie here, who was a Marine, who did a similar type of mission. In 2006 in Iraq, women have been serving alongside combat units since the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan began because it's asymmetric warfare. There's no front lines. Everything's a front line. So the cultural support team was essentially just a formalizing of that philosophy. So we went through a selection process in the same nature of special forces selection, and then uh, we were trained and then attached to Navy SEALs, Green Berets, Army Rangers, 
Delta Force SEAL Team 6 for um, about six years in Afghanistan. And how were you treated by the, the team members while you were there? There's some apprehension. Uh, my team and I were obviously the only females at our particular outpost. We were out in very rural, rural Afghanistan. Um, they actually were the only first Americans in a 10-year, at that point, long conflict to be in that particular area. Um, and so there were a little bit of growing pains, but that's the beauty of combat. It's the great equalizer. So when we got there and we showed that we had a real skill to provide in the particular nature of the combat environment in Afghanistan, we were welcome and we were utilized as very powerful enablers. So what did you, what was your primary role while you were there? My job was to gather uh, information about what the atmosphere in our current village was. Um, as you know, it's an incredibly conservative uh, society. So half the population is not accessed by our male operators. So that's why as females, we came in and we were there to supplement their mission. We were able to have access to the other 50% of the population that had not been touched in a decade of warfare. Um, and then on top of that, we, we were trying to build a local militia in our villages to fight the fight for us because that's sustainable. So we would talk to the mothers and the sisters and we would say, hey, don't send your sons and fathers and brothers to go fight with the Taliban, fight with us. Fight and defend your village against the Taliban. And how did that approach work? Very successful, very successful. I mean, I think most of the women in here can uh, attest that you kind of run the home. Like, even in rural conservative Afghanistan, the, the role of mothers is incredibly powerful, and uh, we were able to leverage that. Were they, did they wear, like, the burqa where you guys were at? Um, well, yes, um, but the, <laughs> the women in our particular area didn't really leave their homes, um, so if, it's more in the cities that they wear the burqa. So I was in eastern Afghanistan at Kunar province, and uh, during those things, those you go through and the women search for the women, we would hear consistently, uh, our females would ask me, like, why? why? What's with the burqa? What's this going on? And surprisingly, none of them, we, the anticipation was that they'd say, oh, my husband makes me wear it, whatever. Every single one of them almost said that it's their mother and their grandmother that made them wear it. They said they had to wear it, so that's why they were wearing it. Uh, so I always thought that was really weird that it was, it wasn't, we have these cultural perceptions of places like Afghanistan, and even if they make sense rationally, like they're way off base. How weird was it to go from America to middle of nowhere, literally, and then back home again? My first deployment was absolutely one of the most formative experiences of my life, and I think because of the people that I met, I had to completely integrate into this village. I, it was a real partnership. Um, and so hearing these women's stories and in, in some ways completely relating to them as women, which is what our program was by design for us to do, um, but I, you can't relate to their circumstances. Uh, so when I came home, I mean, it changed me, um, absolutely. And it, it was really that human side of war that made the biggest impact on me. So you came back then, how long were you back before you left again? Uh, less than a year, and then I um, returned to Afghanistan on my second deployment with 3rd Infantry Division as a platoon leader. And how was that experience? 
Completely different. Uh, on my first appointment, I was a, a two-woman team attached to a 12-man ODA in the middle of nowhere, Afghanistan. My second deployment, I was a platoon leader of 40 in a 4,000-person brigade to a two-province uh, area of operation, and it was just it, it's the army goes rolling along. I mean, you can just see what the might of the American military is capable of when it's mobilized. Um, and it, it, that was also an incredibly formative experience in a completely different way. What was your platoon's responsibility at the time? It was an intelligence platoon. I had soldiers that were signal intelligence as well as, hu as, well as human intelligence. So interrogators. And you were platoon leaders, you were an officer, so you just yes. like watched them work, basically. Um, no, and that's what the beauty of the type of soldier I had. They were attached to line units, so they were also enablers. So they would attach to the cab units and the infantry units that were going out on patrols and help make those guys safer by creating, by gathering intel on the go and like essentially creating an early warning system. And so I was fortunate enough to be able to go on these patrols with my soldiers as a leader should. You enjoyed that? Is what, which one would you prefer, like if you were to go back to it again? Which deployment? Yeah. The first one, it spoke to my heart, and I did over 200 combat patrols and met, um, did some really incredible, unique experiences. I delivered a baby in a snowstorm. I didn't shower for almost eight months, but I would take that, you know, that austere experience any day. So you've been out for two weeks? which yes. is an eternity, basically. <laughs> what, uh, what, what prompted you to get out? Um, the Army was incredible. Uh, it gave me so much more than I ever gave it. I'm very grateful for it, but um, I did miss the lack of personal agency within the military, and it just really was time to move on and pursue some other goals. So you haven't been out very long, obviously, so you don't have it all figured out. What, are your, what do you want to do? Law school, and I'm going to take a year off, do some volunteer work, and then uh, law school fall 2018. Your husband's still in? Yes. Three more years? Yes. Do you have a verbal agreement that he will, or written agreement that he will get out at the end of those three years? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right, final thing. Uh, what's the dumbest, strangest thing that you've been asked by someone randomly? Um, I've been very fortunate that I haven't had any really offensive or um, intrusive questions. I think as a female veteran, the thing that kind of bothers me is there's a default expectation of what female service looks like. And thank you for letting me tell my story because women have been serving and sacrificing heroically in every war that our country has fought in. I have had two close personal friends that have died on night raids with the Army Rangers, and they died doing heroic, heroic things, but that is not a default expectation connected to their sacrifice. So thank you for giving me a platform to tell, you know, one side of female service. Well, thanks for coming up and sharing. Appreciate it. All right, we are just about out of time. We've got time for one more. John, do you mind coming up? John, pause. Silver Star, recipient in Afghanistan, an all-around cool, awesome guy. We were actually in the same brigade together. Uh, he was in 371 Cav, I was in 132. We were in the same 20-mile radius of each other, I suppose. Uh, that was, God, man, what, 10 years ago, right? Uh, we were talking about this earlier. We were, we were children at the time, uh, and you, 
you, what, the coming age is like you were a, you were what, 23, 24? That would have been 22 when I was in charge of a six-man recon team. Six other grown adults Yeah, six well. other grown adults. Like, half of my team was older than me, but I was the highest ranking. What, what was your guys' responsibility? Uh, my team, six-man recon team, we were split up with uh, three snipers and three forward observers. We specialized in long-range fires. The snipers did the direct fires, and the FOs did the indirect fires. So we had a brigade, you know, eyes and ears. And so that deployment, thanks to the 82nd, Drew, uh, ended up being 15 months for us because we got extended because 82nd's, let's be real, too girly to handle it on their own. They needed us for three months to score stuff away. Uh, so 22, you get there. Like it, was, it's, it is a isolated part of Afghanistan, oh, I guess. Absolutely. Good... Like, like where we pushed into, no, nobody had gone to yet. Um, earlier I heard somebody mention, you know, they're talking about Sebastian Hunger and the documentary Restrepo, and we started that. The Corn Gall, that was our brigade. Like, I pulled security for its grand opening. So when you watch Restrepo, you're actually watching our replacements. Uh, the 173rd that's profiled in there, that's who relieved us in Afghanistan. And this place was isolated, like, to the point where we had trouble with the interpreters not knowing the dialect, because these were, these were dialects that were exclusive to these little pockets, and you could piece together kind of what they were saying. Some people thought we were Russians. They didn't know that war was over, because they didn't have any TVs or radios in the valley. Would you mind talking about June 21st a little bit? Uh, sure. June 21st, the... Uh I was a part of a, a reconnaissance mission that was in preparation for what was going to be a large air assault into this village that no Americans had ever gone to before, a uh, village called Gardash. Uh, it was, at that point in the war, 2006, the absolute most northeastern frontier of Afghanistan that America was getting ready to push into. And uh, we were prepping for the mission, said I was a, a team leader for uh, like a brigade asset, essentially. And there was two six-man teams. I was a team leader of one. Uh, another sniper was a team leader of the other. And typically, we just did missions as our six-man teams. But for this one mission in particular, they decided that there's a lot of unknown variables. We're to combine both teams. You, know, you got the extra manpower. We're actually going to give you a medic, because um, everybody else just had what we called a, was uh, either EMT qualified or a CLS, which is like a basic first aid. But they're like, you know, we're gonna combine the teams, we're gonna give you a medic, and we're also gonna plus you up with three or four regular infantry guys, and you'll be the 16-man element. And you'll go in there, you'll get eyes on for three days, watch this valley that we're gonna air assault into. And on June, I think it was supposed to be June 22nd, we're gonna air assault in, go into this village. There was uh, several high-value targets they were looking for, and uh, we'll just have the high ground secured at that point, and we can watch to see if anybody's trying to escape out of there. Well, on, we started the mission on June 19th, uh, dismounted, walked about 10 kilometers, you know, long ridge lines, got up, got eyes on the valley that we were supposed to watch. And on June 21st, kind of everything started to unravel. We were supposed to get resupplied. We carried three days of supplies. And on June 22nd, when they were going to do the big air assault, they were supposed to resupply us at that point. Now, at that point, it doesn't matter, you know. We'd snuck up the mountains undetected, but who cares if when all the helicopters come in, they know that we're there. So the, you know, as they dropped off the soldiers, they're gonna drop off supplies to us. Well, they call us up and they're like, it's been postponed another 24 hours. Yeah, 24 to 48 hours. It actually wasn't even a guaranteed 24. And we're like, well, we can kind of do without food and water, but we need batteries. You know, at that point, you know, so we were a scout element. 
out there on our own, you know, barely within range of artillery, our radio is our lifeline. We lose the radio, we lose everything. And they're like, well, they're like, oh, don't worry about that. We've got a resupply coming to you. And it's like, well, how's there gonna be a resupply if there's no big air assault? And they're like, oh, we're gonna have a helicopter just come out and drop stuff off to you, you know, on its own. It's just like, well, that's gonna kind of give us away. We asked for one at night, a long ways away from our position. In typical Army fashion, the resupply came at one o'clock in the afternoon and dropped at 100 meters from us. So we went out, gathered up our resupply, and as we are coming back into the position, we left four guys at our little OP. You know, and they dropped the resupply in big white bags, you know, on this very narrow ridge line. You know, it just it said to everybody in the world that, hey, we're here. And when I came back, our medic who'd stayed at the position, he's like, hey, we're being watched. Well, one of the safe houses, uh, enemy safe houses that we were watching in the valley, looked down and there's this guy, and he's got a little white bag, but he's got a pair of binoculars, and he's looking up the ridge line at us. And I don't know how many people have been in Afghanistan here, but bird watching is not popular there. Um, binoculars serve one purpose, and that's a military purpose. So obviously, they're able to get pretty good fix on our position. We're on this knife edge ridge line. So we're like, all right, well, the gig's up. They know we're here. But the guy didn't have a weapon. Like, we had readied a fire mission just in case, you know, this guy had any kind of hostile intent. You know, we knew he was bad, but due to the uh, rules of engagement, the guy just watched his binoculars and he walked away. Well, he walked away in the direction over the ridge line that we were on towards this one village that we had very little intel on, but everything just said it's really bad, but we don't know how many fighters are over there, but it's a really bad village. So later on that evening before it got dark, myself with another team leader and another guy that was actually a senior FO that got attached to us, uh, Sergeant First Class Monty, the three of us were having a, a meeting of the minds, I guess you could say, to double up the guard for the night, um, set out some extra claymores, because everybody's a little spooked by you know, our reconnaissance element getting you know, visually compromised. Well, in the middle of our conversation, an RPG screeches overhead. And at that point, all hell broke loose. And our little 16-man patrol at that point uh, got ambushed, you know, near ambushed by uh, 60 to 75 Afghan insurgents. So that began a, a two and a half hour firefight that got within pistol and hand grenade range. During the firefight, Sergeant First Class Monty, uh, one of our wounded soldiers, one of my FOs actually, who was originally under Monty but got detached to me for Afghanistan, he was wounded, he was on the furthest point of our position. And our position, you know, it's 16 guys in a space of five meters wide by 15 meters, 20 meters long at the, at the max. You know, it's a super narrow ridge line. You know, cliffs literally on both sides. The enemy's got the high ground above us because this ridge line was, it was miles long. It was, you know, and they were at the next basically peak up fighting down from that. We had just had, you know, almost 10 kilometers ridge line behind us going down that we'd come up, but there's no way to go left or right. Well, anyways, uh, one of our soldiers, Private Bradbury, he was wounded nearest the enemy, and the enemy was doing the best, everything they could to try to flank us and overrun us, and they had superiority numbers by far. Well, as soon as we learned that Bradbury was exposed out there and he was wounded, Monty passed off his radio, said he was the senior FO calling in artillery, which said we were on the absolute edge of at that point. Was that coming out of Blessing? Naray. Uh, so Bob Bostic you know, got called shortly after. But, yeah, so uh, like you're within a few hundred meters of not being within coverage. Yes. Okay. And uh, Monty passed off the radio and he's like, I'm going for him. And I coordinated with Monty and I was like, all right, um, 
you know, we hollered out. At that point, we had two or three guys wounded and one guy dead out of our 16. And Monty wanted to go out there and get Bradbury. We coordinated, like, on the count of three, everybody provide cover and fire. We all opened up. Monty ran out there. He made it about halfway. And the intensity was just so much that Monty got drove back. And he's, he drove back behind some rocks. You know, we're returning fire. And it was just this wall of lead that he's attempting to run into to try to get to Bradbury. And he's like, all right, I'm going to go again. So we hollered it out. It's like, all right, you know, find the cover and fire for him. He tries a second time. And he makes it a little bit closer to Bradbury. The RPGs are screaming in. Machine gun fire is absolutely decimating the place. And he has to come back behind cover. So most people would stop there. They would get the hint that, you know, this probably isn't the best idea. Not Monty. Monty's by far the bravest soldier I'd ever known. And he said, I'm going to third time. So <laughs> a little choked up here. But uh, at that point, I was down to, uh, I went through many weapons that night. And uh, I had one grenade left for my grenade launcher. And I was like, oh, I got one left, one grenade left. I'll fire it at the nearest enemy position. Uh, once that bursts, you know, go for it. So, you know, we, we hollered out the plan. I fired the last grenade. Monty took off running towards Bradbury. He got about three quarters of the way there. You know, I was firing as fast as I could to the M4, trying to provide the cover and fire for Monty. And as soon as my mag went empty, I ran out of ammo. I started to drop behind this boulder I was using for cover. And at that instant, an RPG screamed in, impacted the middle of our position, and it took Monty out at the legs. Uh, so Monty was fatally wounded on his third and final attempt to get Bradbury. Um, the firefight lasted about another 45 minutes or so, and uh, the results of that night is uh, Monty ended up becoming the first Medal of Honor recipient for the Army in Afghanistan. So uh, in, in 2009, I got to go to the White House, you know, shake hands with the president and all the survivors of the ambush, and uh, we got to honor Monty as he as his parents received the Medal of Honor on his behalf and was inducted into the uh, Hall of Heroes at the Pentagon. Now it's Bob Monty out there too, right? Yeah, after that, uh, Gardesh, uh, the, the air assault never did happen the next day. They actually ended up canceling it for about two months. It was about two months later, we actually all air assaulted back into that valley. The day after the ambush, we all had to just walk off the ridge line with no support. But uh, two months later, we did air assault back in there. We established a, a combat outpost there, and it, that was uh, called, uh, well, that one was called Cop Libert after another guy that was in our ambush. That night, we ended up losing uh, four people total. Uh, Sergeant Monty, Bradbury, the soldier he was trying to save. Uh, Sergeant Libert was killed in the initial volley of machine gun fire. And then, <laughs> Right at the end of the fight, you know, when you think that all the bad stuff's over, we had a, a medevac come in. And so we're on a ridge line, about 9,000 feet elevation or so. And a flight medic comes in, and they have to, they can't land. It's said this narrow ridge line, only about five meters wide. So they come in on a hoist that's called a jungle penetrator. It looks like a big treble hook on the bottom of a cable. And they lowered him down, and he got uh, James, one of our other FOs who was wounded. They hoisted him up, and then we uh, they rigged up Bradbury uh, to hoist Bradbury up. And at that point, it was going to be our that was our two wounded. Yeah, you know, at that point, because uh, Monty was dead, Libert was dead, and we had Bradbury and James to get out of there. So they got James up in there. They go to get Bradbury up, but uh, to this day, it's a little like unclear exactly how it happened. The way these jungle penetrators works, work, it's like a big treble hook that you sit on. The medical sit on one side, the casualty will sit on the other. And like you kind of hold each other in close, you know, you just get pulled straight back up into the helicopter. Well, 
they couldn't, with both of them wearing their gear and Bradbury being as weak as he was uh, from loss of blood, they think that you know, he was kind of leaning out more. Well, that caught the wind at 9,000 feet elevation or whatever, and they started to oscillate. And the higher they got towards the helicopter, the quicker the oscillation happened. And when they were just a few feet shy of the helicopter, the cable snapped. And we lost Bradbury uh, and the medic, uh, Craig Heath. Uh, you know, they both plummeted back down to the mountain. And, you know, I tried to provide aid for them, but uh, we ended up losing both of them. So, you know, the next morning, a different medevac came in, took out at that point our four killed in action, you know, and the rest of us walked down off the mountain. So this was in June. We've been there four or five months. Yes. Uh, about a year to go. Yep. Uh, how do you, I mean, you've got soldiers, right? Like, mm -hmm. what do you do when you get back to the, to the FOB? How do you... How do you help them process that? How do you process that? Yeah, it's weird to say because yeah, I get choked up talking about it a little bit now. But uh, like, like back then, you had the mission to focus on. Uh, when we came back from it, we had a couple weeks down. You know, before you know they put us back out on mission. You know, they, they gave us time to kind of decompress. You know, notify family, uh, stuff like that. You know, it was about three or four weeks later that we actually restarted going back on missions, you know, our team in particular. Uh, but after that, you know, the op tempo just kept you busy. And you had a, a mission to focus on. Uh, for me, it, I knew, I guess, a little bit about, you know, my background. I grew up wanting to do this my entire life. And I grew up reading, you know, about the Vietnam vets. You know, th those were my heroes growing up. And I knew for lack of a better word, the reality war, you know, bad things happen to good people. So when that stuff actually happened in real life, I guess you could say I was mentally prepared for it. So I was able to continue moving and processing. Um, you know, other guys, you know, sadly, some guys don't ever make that actual connection. And when it happens, you know, there's, you know, sometimes a pause that they never get over. But, uh, yeah, I knew that, hey, this is a reality of war. You know, and I, I just pushed through it. Um, you know, and we were busy, you know, we were supposed to be there instead of a year. We were supposed to go home that January and we got extended another four months, um, you know, two weeks from going home. You know, at that point, everybody was angry, but then he just, the op tempo was the constant missions. You just, you didn't have time to focus on and, you know, anything else like that. So you just, you know, pushed off that stuff. And, you know, when we got home, you know, lots of people had trouble, you know, reconnecting, whatever. Uh, me personally, it was, you know, I'd flip the switch on to, you know, like mission mode while I was in Afghanistan. And when I came home, it was really hard to flip the switch back. I was just emotionally numb for quite a long time after I came home. Yeah, and that, that took its toll on several different things. And it, it took a couple of years, actually, to, I don't know, not let, well, it's not that the little stuff necessarily bothered me. When I came home, I just didn't have anything to connect with people. You know, everybody was talking about what the latest, greatest thing was on Idol last night. And I could care less what was on, you know, American Idol the night before. You know, but I, I ended up just kind of being, you know, quiet and removed myself socially because I just didn't have that connection anymore. And the uh, couple of years and, you know, really just time, all that got better for me. But. You stayed in the infantry, but you got a schoolhouse assignment, right? Yeah, after I came back from Afghanistan, I went to uh, South Carolina, got an instructor position. I was a weapons instructor there. And I got out of active duty in 2009, about two years after we came home from that deployment in Afghanistan. 
and joined the reserve shortly after, and I've been in the reserves ever since. All right, and so we won't get deep into this because it's confusing even me, but you reclassed several times. Yes. Uh, so your infantry, then MP next? Yeah, well, ammunition specialist, but I've never worked a day in my life at it, but I got the job. But I became an MP uh, just over two years ago, went to Cuba, worked a detainee mission in Cuba as an MP. Um, didn't really care for the MP world. I just transferred out of that. I'm in an instructor unit again. So you were doing the cool MP stuff, guarding detainees, not the shitty MP stuff of locking up dudes for drinking underage, stuff like that. Correct. Right? Okay, Correct. so you were one of the good ones. I still wouldn't call detainee ops cool, but... Uh, cooler. Yeah, it's cooler, yeah. And, you, and then, so now you are... Uh, at, Op four, you're running a... Right now, I'm in a unit that runs all the war exercises for the Guard and Reserves. So, so you ride around on a, like on a quad, like throwing boomsticks while kids are sleeping. Yeah, I put on my deer hunting clothes, throw CS you know, dress gas. up in regular camo, and wake up everybody else in the middle of the night when they think they're going to get some rest. That's awesome, man. And so how many years do you have left? Uh, this month is 15 years for me. 15, you gonna do, so, you do 30? No, no, 20 years to the day. You know, I, I'm hoping that, you know, if you see me, you know, I got five years left, I'm hoping that if you see me six years from now, I'm gonna look like somebody from Duck Dynasty. Yeah. So that's the goal. So 20 years in one day, we're gonna reach back out and see where you're at. And then if you're still in, I guess phone calls need to be made at that point. <laughs> uh, final question, dumbest, weirdest thing you've been asked? I can't think of many like dumb, weird things. Um, uncomfortable things? Oddly, because of my background, it's kind of the opposite. I find that most people don't ask me anything. Really? So, and the thing is, like, part of the reason I'm up here now, like, I don't mind talking about anything. Like, I'm not going to just volunteer it, but, you know, I don't go around, like, saying it. But if you ask me a question, I'll give you the honest answer. And, you know, I won't sugarcoat anything, and there's nothing that, like, bothers me necessarily to talk about. But, like, when I came home from Afghanistan, like, I noticed it first with my family, but a lot of friends, too, would be like, oh, he was a sniper in Afghanistan. So it's just like, you don't ask, you don't get asked the question and be like, you know, do you ever, you know, how many people you killed or whatever like that. You know, it's just, I find that people kind of like avoid talking. <laughs> and is that worse almost? Like what, would it, you rather they ask about it? Yeah, I'd rather that they ask just so we have something to talk about because, you know, I don't really follow sports. And, you know, I already told you I don't watch Idol. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Give me something to talk about. Yeah, those things all do seem very trivial after a few tours, right? Yes. <laughs> Thanks, John. Thanks so much for coming and sharing your story, man. Appreciate it, brother. All right, so we are about 15 minutes over, so we're going to end it there. I feel like I am forgetting something, Sharon. Colonel, where is he? Sir, we have not had a, uh, an Air Force representative yet. Good evening. I know this is late and I'll, I'll keep, it, keep my comments short. First off, by just sitting in the audience here tonight and, and listening to stories that uh, all you veterans have been talking about, it's obvious to tell that the profession of arms that we're all involved with is not an easy choice and not an easy life. And I, for one, am humbled by all the veterans that are here and the service that you have provided. And I thank you from the bottom of my heart for the service that you've done. So thank you all for, for everything that you've done. And uh, your stories topple mine. Uh, I've had the opportunity to serve this country for a little over 30 years now. I'm currently the Aircraft Maintenance Group Commander out at the 910th Airlift Wing, which is uh, not too far from here. We call it the best defended cornfield in Northeast Ohio. <laughs> 
And we're home of eight uh, C-130s out there right now. And our, our mission is uh, tactical airlift and uh, aerial spray. We're Department of Defense's only aerial spray system that's out there. And the men and women of the, the 910th uh, are, are always out there. Uh, we're a reserve unit, but that doesn't mean that we only come out one weekend a month. We're always out there each and every day. You'll see our aircraft flying around here in the pattern. You'll see us uh, flying around there. And my folks, the maintainers, are the ones that keep those aircraft safe and, and flying out there. Uh, so you don't have anything to worry. Nothing's going to fall off of them that's not supposed to come off. So, but anyhow, uh, the men and women out there are, are proud to serve this country, just as I am. And, uh, and tonight, there are a large group. About two weeks ago, I had the uh, task of sending off a large group of our folks from Youngstown to uh, undisclosed location over in the, the desert. And, uh, I bet I can guess. Pardon me? I bet I can guess where they are. Where are they at? <laughs> where would your guess be? Iraq, Syria. Somewhere in that same area. Sure. Yes. And this is the second time that we've been out there in, in uh, the last three years that I've been there. So we are constantly out there. And so tonight, uh, I just ask that you send your prayers and thoughts for them. Now, one of the things that we always sometimes forget, you know, I, I've said I've served this country for 30 years. And one of the things that I couldn't do my job well is if I didn't have a wife like my wife, Regina. So, Regina. <laughs> We never fought in our first year of marriage either. We still don't fight. And when I was deployed, when I was in Iceland for a remote tour for a year, we didn't fight then either. So, but anyhow, uh, one of the big things that we are is we're big on family. When we send all those members off and folks go deploying, one thing that we tend to forget is that there's a large number of folks that are here, families that are, are home and are, uh, are missing. Uh, a lot of things and, and not used to this military way of life and that's one of the things that we the ones back here myself and and Regina she's a key spouse out at the base that she goes out and they uh, help the families that are having difficulties to cope with a lot of the deployments when folks are gone for a long period of time because that's it's not an easy task and that's probably I would say the toughest job in the in the military in today's profession of arms is the the family members for putting up with our deployments constant deployments our constant uh, working long hours and being in harm's way all the time so I know she'll probably kill me for saying this do you want to say any words um <laughs> I would just like to say that we, we do support the families of our service members on base. And we try to support them because if the families aren't happy at home, we know it's more difficult for you to do your job. So we try to put out those fires here at home so that you can concentrate on your job and most importantly, come back to us. That's why we do it. We are I am honored and humbled to hear all of your stories here tonight. And those of you who have served, thank you so much. And it's been said, well, Dave's colonel. The colonel has an eagle on his wing. He says, I'm the wind be beneath his wings. But you are the wind beneath our wings. Because without you, we wouldn't have a purpose here. And we would also like to thank Sharon Thank you so much for being the wind beneath all of the veterans' wings. We need a voice. Thank you. Thank you. 
I could tell you different stories about Youngstown. The folks out there are fantastic. If you ever get an opportunity to come out there and visit us, they really do love this country, and we're extremely thankful. Sharon, I, I had the honor of meeting you not too long ago, and thank you for inviting us out here. You really bring a lot to not only the base, everybody I talked to out at the base loves you and uh, all the things that you've done for all of us. So uh, thank you for that, and for a lot of the different organizations that are out there that support the base. So anybody have any questions? I have one for you, sir. Uh, full bird, Colonel? Yes. Oh, six? Okay. So this could be one of those dumb, weird questions. Here it comes. So when I was in the Army, I was enlisted, right. and I made sergeant. And like, when they put those stripes on me, I was like, damn, that's cool. Mm -hmm. So like when you got the bird on, mm -hmm. when you first looked at it in the mirror, were you like, that's right, I'm a colonel. <laughs> first time I thought, saw that, I thought I was dreaming because I never thought I'd ever make it that high. But yes, uh, yeah, it was uh, an accomplishment that I was so honored to be there, and, and my mother was able to see me uh, pin that on, and that, that honored me as well. Awesome. Thanks so much, sir. I appreciate it. Really, thank you, sir. All right, we have one more, very quickly. Brian Flick, Navy guy, joined in 99, 98? 99. Something like that. But he wants to talk about briefly the, uh, you are now with Community Action Partnership. I am, yeah. I am the uh, Veteran Housing Advisor for Community Action Partnership here in Mercer County. I assist veterans with uh, two grants, uh, the federal grant through the VA and then the state grant uh, for veterans who are literally homeless. So I go out and look for homeless veterans all the time and those that are facing eviction. The hardest part about being a veteran sometimes is knowing what is out there and services for you in the community. So this Thursday, it's our third annual veteran and resource fair at the mall here in Hermitage. There'll be 53 vendors out there. The VA will be there giving out flu shots. Um, there'll be a masseuse there too. The Erie Vet Center will be down there with their truck. There'll be colleges there, healthcare people there, uh, Head Start will be there, AWARE will be there, you name it, they'll be there to tell you what kind of services are available for you and your family as a veteran. And then also there is a special area just for veterans only, and it's a surplus um, area just for you. You'll get a bracelet when you come in, and on your way out, you'll get some cool stuff from that. General public is welcome to attend? Absolutely, because everybody knows a veteran, I think, these days. So, you know, if a veteran doesn't come themselves, hopefully somebody will. That way they can pass that information along at some point to them. So this reiterates Thursday, the 6th, Shenango Valley Mall. Correct. 10, 10 to 3. 3. Yes. How many veterans do you expect? Uh, over 100. Last year we had 57 veterans come through. The year before it was 8. So there's approximately just under 11,000 veterans alone in Mercer County. So I'd like to see all of them. I'm greedy that way. There you go. It makes me look good. Right. So. Yeah, so please come out, I'd appreciate it. Do you have any more flyers with you? I do, I have a stack of flyers over there, so if you would like one, you can come take one from me. Also, it's Community Action's website, the information is on there as well. Great, thanks man, thanks, appreciate, appreciate it, brother. All right, I think that's it. Okay, I think that's it, guys. Thanks so much for coming out. Uh, thanks to everyone that got up and told their story, appreciate having you here. Thanks for everyone for coming listening. This has been a live recording of the Veterans Breakfast Club. For more information about our local storytelling events and how veterans can preserve their stories for future generations, call 412-623-9029 or visit our website at veteransbreakfastclub.com. Thanks for listening.